0: Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, your shorthand guide to the week's biggest news in TV, brought to you by the Broadcast Editorial team. This week we're taking a trip out of London and into the BBC's Nations and Regions Master Plan. Who wins? Who loses? Who needs to think about buying a new house in a new city? Plus we'll hear from the team behind the shocking BBC One doc series, Football's Darkest Secret, and we'll reveal our latest TV habits in what we've been watching. I'm Jesse Whittock, and this is the Broadcast News Wrap. So, joining me today is Broadcast Senior Reporter Max Goldbart. Uh, We're going to dissect what has been described as the BBC's biggest reform of programme services and operations since the 1990s uh tim davy says it's bigger than the relocation or at least partial relocation to salford in the 2000s max how are you
1: yeah very good thank you thank you jesse and uh, glad to be featuring on the news Wrap for another week it's been a busy old day
0: uh, yeah, it seems so. Um, it's uh, there's a lot to unpack here. This is quite a uh, structural change for the BBC, uh, and you have been sort of digging into into and behind the headlines. Uh, so, what's what's actually what's actually been said today, and uh, what what do people need to know about uh, about the announcement?
1: Yeah, so so there's plenty in here. It's it's funny. We um, sort of re- received a couple of days ago. The media reporters received like a quite guarded. Uh, invitation to a briefing and nobody really knew what it was about. It was quite similar to the sort of invitations that we get before the BBC annual reports Um, and it clearly made out that it was going to be quite a big deal. Yesterday, some reports started coming out that there was going to be a big relocation to Leeds or to Newcastle, but um, albeit without very much detail. And one of the things that Tim Davey, uh, who, by the way, is marking six months in the job, but one of the uh, main things that he's talked about quite frequently is the nations and regions. And he he did a little coded all staff speech a couple of weeks ago where he talked about moving. Um, and Tony Hall, actually, about a year ago, uh, did a speech whereby he said two thirds of the BBC could be out of London by 2027 so this is the natural progression from that really so what have we got there's quite a few things in today's announcement currently the bbc has to make 50 percent of its shows outside of london that is going to increase to 60 so a 10 percent increase is quite big that's 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 millions of pounds that's lots of hours that that's quite quite a really um really decent increase in our world in the kind of tv commissioning production company world New commissioning roles are going to be created in the northeast of England, the northwest, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And four of these new roles are going to support new writer development, which I thought was interesting. Uh, So there's going to be a head of new writing is is the post that's going to be announced quite soon. Uh, with four more commissioning roles. So commissioners are springing up in a few places. A lot of this is about portrayal, and, and we'll go on to talk about this uh, at length in a little bit. So over the next three years, at least 100 scripted titles will reflect the lives of the UK's nations and regions' communities, and 20 of those will specifically be Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, so the, uh, the UK nations.
0: So do you think, Max, that the BBC has seen some of the schedules... Uh, on other channels and thought you know what I want I want me some more Yorkshire programming I think there's
1: plenty of this knocking around at the moment and and the specifically this thing about hundred scripted titles I think the BBC was very careful at stating that they will reflect the lives of the UK's nations and regions communities right rather than stating that they will specifically be produced within the nations and regions so unfortunately that appears to pave the way for shows that can be made in london but about the nations and regions which is obviously like a good thing in one sense it's a good thing for portrayal but it doesn't help with the longer term issues around skills bases and talent bases outside of london which i think we'll touch on two new high volume scripted series to be commissioned outside of london one will be from the north of england and the other from the nations and that's that's some big work that's transformative i think for a for a scripted indie it will be like the equivalent of a casualty or or a doctor's, they've um, specified that at least thirty episodes per year. So that's big business. I'm not quite sure on time scales there, but um, that's that's a big deal for for a couple of for a couple of production companies at least. And then changes in news. So as as we speak, actually uh, we're recording at around half past three on the 18th of March. More and more information is coming out about some cuts to the news division, which may have been. Um, sort of secretly slid out a little bit. They didn't really come up in the briefing that we had earlier. Um, so 50% of the BBC News divisions are going to be moved. These are new, what's called theme-led divisions. So uh, as has been covered already, as was announced about a year ago, the BBC News is moving to what's called a theme-led structure. So it'll have different divisions focused on say business or, or the environment or politics. And some of these are moving to Leeds, some of them are moving to Birmingham. Some of them are moving to Salford. This equates to around 200 jobs uh, with another 100 digital posts created. Um, and some people are going to lose their jobs as well.
0: I, it'll go one of two ways, won't it? It'll either op- there'll be lots of opportunities uh, for local staff. But there's also, like you say, going to be a fair number of people who are leaving the BBC as a result of these changes.
1: There are not that many people relocating at the moment like especially considering how transformative these are being described there are these 200 news roles that are relocating but there isn't a figure yet on the roles that are relocating from the tv commissioning teams or the tv in-house production teams and and a lot of the talk that there are lots of comparisons being made to the move to Salford which was Uh, sort of towards not the end of last decade, but the prior decade, uh, Media City UK, but 2000 people moved to Salford, of which two thirds actually ended up not deciding against moving and and local people were hired instead. So this is this is quite different. Like I said, there isn't really a figure on it yet. It will probably only amount to, again, a a couple of hundred in in TV commissioning and, and the wider TV teams, I believe. Um, so there is a little bit of a different there. Difference there again. It it sort of goes back to portrayal almost.
0: It's uh, it's very much the case we find speaking to producers and following social media that one of the big gripes within the nations and regions is this um, perception that you know, London-based producers will sort of rock up, uh, will produce you know a, a piece of television, whether that's just a morning VT for a new show, or whether that's a bigger series, partially relocate over. That's been a big frustration for many years, and I think it still uh, is a question and a debate that is ongoing.
1: I've, I've, again, I've been thinking a lot about comparisons to Salford and the conversation. There is, there is no doubt that back then, when the, it almost felt like the nations and regions had been abandoned for, for a good decade... Uh, but back then the idea of lift and shift was much more necessary. Uh, so moving a specific production just for a short period of time to a different city or, or a different nation. Um, but the conversation has, has come on a long way since then and nations and regions programming has Uh, vastly improved the landscape for it has vastly improved channel four is obviously off the back of having relocated quite a few commissioners and and channel four actually i think was has been much more specific in terms of moving specific genres or, or specific people than what this proposal so far outlines but what this is all about in our world i think in our in our tv broadcasting world and its relation to production companies this is all about big returners really this is all about the idea that commissioners will be in different parts of the country in this, what they're describing as a pan-UK commissioning model, and we can have a bigger organic turnover of high-volume returning series. Kat Lewis, who, who oversees the uh, indie trade body, the, the indie club who lobbies for, for the nations and regions, and, and she's really happy uh, with this because it seems to lend itself really well to these returners and shifts the conversation on.
0: Um, and, and as a final uh, point on uh, the, this uh, Nations and Regions plan that Tim Davies rolled out, he's talked a lot about representation uh, today and about what this means for the BBC, sort of the portrayal uh, of of what the BBC is trying to represent. But what, what is he getting at here?
1: So Tim Davies coming in last September when the period of goodwill that had been afforded to the bbc around the coronavirus was kind of waning a little bit um it couldn't go on forever and he has been very keen to make representing the uk in its entirety one of the absolute key planks to his approach i would say that that and impartiality and his ideas around fewer bigger better and his ideas about commercial boosting commercial are kind of his his real like main points that he just continues to hit. And this really speaks to that. So I've I've kind of touched on it a little bit so far today. But as I said, talks even more about portrayal than he does necessarily about like specifically moving people to a, to a specific place. It's noticeable that one of the a lot of the big pushes are in in more sort of Brexit heartland areas uh, such as the northeast. There's quite a lot of talk of the northeast and the Northwest. Um, And and something I found really interesting is within the proposal, within this, these, this 13 page proposal, there are some very specific places singled out. It gets very granular. Uh, So if, if you'll just bear with me a second, there's there's one bullet point that says "Our, our programming across all genres will portray stories from all corners of the UK, including current commissions set in Birmingham, Belfast, Bolton, Bristol, Cardiff, Cumbria, Cornwall. Coventry, Edinburgh, Fast Lane, Gateshead, Halifax, Liverpool, Leeds, Manchester. And then we've got Middlesbrough, Mansfield, Newcastle, Upon Tyne, Nottingham, Norwich, Port Talbot, and County Down. He ends with County Down. So, I enjoy the granularity of those places and to me it again speaks to the idea that the, that he knows the BBC needs to do better at speaking beyond metropolitan cities and there is embedded in all of this is that idea and, and it, it seems to have really driven these proposals.
0: There's also a very uh, strange alphabetization of that, uh, that list there. Um, beginning with B and running through to, I think it was P, and then jumping back to To, to County Down, uh, yeah. <laughs> to County Down, a very, a very strange addition at the end there. Um, I'd also be annoyed if I was from Air or Aberdeen, uh, or anywhere towards the end of the alphabet it sounds like um, they're not included in, in these proposals.
1: And the, the more granular they go, you, the more people you're going to upset. So uh, so I would say be really careful. But but it is really interesting. Look, jo- John Whittingdale, the Culture Minister, has spoken about the BBC needing to embrace the, the government's levelling up agenda. Um, and that's obviously about speaking to so many of these places and there's a lot of politics involved with that. And while the BBC's involvement with that is less overtly political clearly that is something that tim davy is really keen to k- keep pushing on and, and it seems to be going okay so far so that'll be fascinating to look out for and, and just
0: as a final um, point here max how exactly how sort of seismic and important is the announcement today
1: that for me remains to be seen i'm i don't quite know if it's going to be as transformative as they're making out and i think there are still some some I's to dot and some T's to cross. Like I said, uh, I sound like a broken record, but it it feels more about representation and portrayal for me than it does about like an uproot of the way that the BBC works. And I think in a few years' time, most of the big commissioning departments are still majoritarily going to be based here in the capital. While the content may have changed to some extent, I'm not sure how much that will point back to what happened today I would be a little bit sceptical whereas Salford it was much clearer what was going on there were 2,000 people were moving to a specific place far away from London whereas this I think there are, there's quite a lot more subtle stuff going on I'm not for a second saying that it's not a big deal but I think quite a lot remains to be seen
0: you may well have seen the headlines on bbc.co.uk already But next week, BBC One will strip the shocking three-part documentary series, Football's Darkest Secret. Series exposes serious failings within the English football establishment that allowed the despicable sexual abuse of young boys to go unchecked for many years. Max spoke to the series producer, Hugh Davis, and director, Daniel Gordon, about pulling the series together um, and what the series uh, exposes and may mean going forwards.
2: I think, like everyone, um, I was really shocked when the allegations first came out, and we're going back to November 2016, which oh, obviously a year ago seems a lifetime ago, doesn't it? But but this really doesn't seem like that long ago. And I'd just done the Hillsborough film for BBC, and I was looking at uh, what could possibly be, you know, a, a big story to, to to a big subject matter to tackle, and. Um, It felt like the right kind of story, but very quickly I I sort of backed away from it because I just felt there was so much happening and the story was evolving so much so quickly that it just didn't feel like the right time to be tackling this story. Um, And about six months later, I'd I'd already sort of decided that I I felt it was at least five years away from from being told properly. Um, And so we're we're talking sort of the summer of 2017, Hugh approached me and had carried on researching and looking into and connecting with, with some of the survivors and with uh, police forces. And although I was reticent to, to sort of jump back into it, he was um, very persuasive. And we met in uh, up in Sheffield. Uh, we had a discussion. I very quickly thought, we, we do need to, to make this film, that this
1: is a story that really needs to be told. And, and three years in the making is, it feels like a great deal of time. Is, is that quite unusual for a, for a documentary of this scope?
2: No, I'd say it's, it's just about right. I think we're getting on for, for almost four years in, in the making. Most of my projects are between two and five okay. uh, years to make. And you, you need that time space to, to figure out what the story is. This is always going to be a three part series. Um, and it still ended up being slightly longer than the three initial hours that that we envisaged. But we always felt it was a it was a big story, and, and they need time. They need the time and space to to be able to tell that fully. We also had a number of high profile criminal cases that we were going to follow that we just didn't know what was going to happen. Mm. So it wasn't like a historical story that we could just tell what had happened. There was an awful lot of of um, material and, and storyline happening in the present.
1: Mm. Mm. And, and Hugh, what, what was your involvement uh, kind of throughout this process?
3: Uh, so I'm the producer on the series, you know, as Dan said, I kind of reached out to him having developed some access to a few of the guys and um, some of the police forces that were beginning to kind of engage in investigations. And yeah, I mean, we, we kind of looked at it together and thought it, it kind of really needed telling. And then you know, over the past few years, as Dan said, we've been we've been following a number of criminal trials. You know, one up in Liverpool, one down in Winchester, um, and another in Newcastle. So, you know, I I I spend a lot of time. You know, following those trials in person, and you know, getting to know the various people involved in the story, and sort of cultivating those relationships. I suppose
1: one of the one of the parts of the the first episode that that really struck me is the Victoria Derbyshire interview, which I do remember from the time, and I also remember actually that interview was used as a as a main um, kind of arguing block for the Victoria Derbyshire show not being taken off air, I, I remember that quite well, and it, it was it was brilliant and, and won awards, and I thought she did really well. And I was thinking about having all, all of these men who'd been so brave getting them to open up once again uh, for your for your documentary. So, so how how did you go about that? Really, what was your relationship like with these guys?
2: Uh, well, I mean, from, from my point of view, the Hugh had made uh, inroads in with, with with a number of the guys initially and it was then a case really of of meeting up with them telling them what what we saw uh as as a documentary really wanting to find out more because some of them had disposed certain elements to Victoria Derbyshire but had, had sort of kept some back and it was really having that that relationship with the survivors and and making sure they understand that we viewed this as a it was always going to be a survivor-led film. In order for them to trust us, they, they, you know, they viewed, you know, previous documentaries of mine to see how I, you know, how how I approach things and how I try and deal, you know, as sensibly as I can with people who have got quite horrific stories to tell. And I guess once we got that trust, it was then about spending as much time as possible with them, you know, before we even filmed anything. Legally, we were quite restricted. If anyone was involved in a current case. We couldn't even speak to them other than to tell them what we were doing, because then that would involve all sorts of legal issues for us. So we we stayed clear of, of a lot of people away from, you know, who were involved in, in current processes. And then once certain trials concluded, then we were able to sit down with them, you know, and, and do their, the interview. And by then they, they were ready to, to tell their story and they knew that this was you know their opportunity to tell their story. I would just
3: add to that as well. I think, you know, one of the things that we were, you know, when we first set out that we were kind of trying to do was both tell a retrospective story as well as a kind of unfolding story. You know, so whilst a number of the guys had spoken out previously about, you know, what had happened to them in the past, kind of right from the beginning, I think our our sort of collective aim was to try to tell a story of, you know, these men and their attempts to get just, justice, you know, all these decades later, um, while simultaneously kind of looking back at what had happened to them in the past. So it felt like, you know, that was that was kind of the goal. Um, and I guess that was, you know, we conveyed that to the guys that, that there was a new element to what we were trying to do here, which was to kind of see, you know, what this feels like as a survivor to come forward. Um, and I think we, we felt like we had quite a unique opportunity to try to give an insight into, you know, not just what it's like to go through the criminal justice process as a survivor of historical sexual abuse, but also what it's like for the families, um, you know, and relatives of survivors, what it, you know, that kind of ripple effect that child abuse has. Um, on loved ones and on people through their life.
1: One of the things I really liked was the way you jumped between time. So I, I really enjoyed those visuals of moving quite seamlessly between 2016, 2017 and the sort of 60s, 70s onwards. But it sounds like a really challenging concept, the idea of of being able to be retrospective and also following events as they go. So is, was, was that a real challenge for you guys or is that something you've done previously? I think to the
2: extent that we did it, uh, that's something new for me. I, I've done films where we have gone back and forth, but, but not quite as often. And and what the challenge was, was to try and tell, weave these sort of two elements of the, the here and now and, and the past life. Um, and from the here and now, we're talking from that November 2016 onwards. And sometimes we were going back to the 70s, sometimes it was the 90s. You want to try and keep the audience on that, that road and not get them confused and, and sort of know you're going back in time and no, without it being tricksy. I think that was a, a, a big challenge for us. Mm. And we just felt that, you know, it was going to take time. There wasn't going to, there was never going to be a narrator in the film. So that that was a huge challenge in terms of just trying to make this work. You know, most most of the films I make are, have got no narrator in it. So that just takes longer to do. And, and we were prepared for that.
1: Just back to the contributors again, I was just wondering if you had much pushback. I mean, I imagine that they were so brave in coming forward in the first instance, led by Andy Woodward in in The Guardian with Daniel Taylor in 2016. Subsequently, many more came forward. And when it came to you guys making the doc, was there any pushback from people saying, you know we've we've done this, we've made this huge step and we don't want to revisit it once again for the for the second time in whatever three or four years?
2: I don't recall, I might be wrong, I don't recall any pushback as such. What what we were very careful to do was not to ask anyone to engage with us if we didn't think that they were going to be interviewed and be on the film and that was a commitment okay. that we made for everyone. Once we interviewed someone on camera they were going to end up in the series and, and also when we were doing those initial discussions with people, we were really at pains to underline that this this wasn't a casting session. We just wanted to speak to them and, and we'd be trying to figure out what we were going to do. And, and because it was clearly going to be quite a, a complex series, we just didn't want to go down the road where, oh, that seems like a good idea, but actually when you get into the edit, it's a really not a good idea. Now you've interviewed someone and not, you're not going to use them. So it, it was quite a long process, I think, of, um, of getting ready before... We did the actual interviewing. Um, also, because we were able to attend these criminal trials, we we're getting an awful lot of material and understanding and knowledge of people's backstories and their evidence. So we we could interview them afterwards with that knowledge, you know, that, that we wouldn't have necessarily got otherwise. And so we were able to just work out, you know, who was similar and and who was very different and who had a di- slightly different story. To tell in order to, to work out what would make sort of the best overall representation of, of again this very complicated
3: story mm. and I'd just add I mean I think also you know part of that process was getting to understand which survivors were comfortable with talking about their stories publicly you know um, I think one of the great we were very fortunate as you mentioned that some people had already done some brilliant work on this on this subject matter, like Daniel Taylor, Victoria Derbyshire, Deborah Davis. So, you know, we were able to, to kind of draw on the work that they'd done and get a sense for which survivors would be most comfortable telling their story.
1: From the BBC point of view, it's quite rare for the BBC to to show a documentary one day after the other in this in this stripped kind of format. I think the last time was about three years ago with the uh, Stephen Lawrence documentary, uh, which I think was uh, uh, extremely impactful. Do, do you think that will, uh, are, you, are you pleased with the way that the BBC are, are approaching that? And do you think that will change the way in which people watch the documentary or consume the documentary?
2: I, I mean, for, for me personally, I'm delighted that the BBC have taken that decision. Um, they've been planning to Uh, from very early on, I think, once Mm. we started to get an understanding of of what we were getting on camera, I think they wanted to have the highest impact. And and it's not about ratings, really. It's about, for them, it really is about having these guys' voices heard. That's something that they've they've always said, um, you know, from the beginning when we started talking to them about it, that it was clear that these guys needed to have their voices heard. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I mean it's, um, you know, for us as a production it's it's you know, it's brilliant to have, you know, something like this go out three three nights on the tram. We're very grateful for it, but it it, it is a subject matter that, that needs talking about, and I mm. think having that high impact gives it the best possible chance to, you know for, for people to see it and to understand it. And you know, I think at the time, I, I do recall you know, some people going, you know, at the time, I'm going back to 2016, November 2016. There was this sort of um, almost a gasp and a you know, drop your mouth kind of moment. But then you start thinking, you know, oh, why didn't these guys say something at the time, or what, you know, what what prevented them? And I think this this series really does give you a really full, deep understanding um, of how this this behavior, how, how people get away with it, and and what happens to these guys. And I think, again, just, just telling their stories is, is hugely important. So mm-hmm. to, to have that impact of, of Three Nights on a Trot is, is really, really, mm. you know, we're, we're grateful for it. And I, I think the, um, you know, the, the survivors are too. Mm. Mm.
1: And you, you said that ratings isn't necessarily at the forefront of your mind. Are there other more long-term impacts that you're hoping this documentary will have?
2: I, I, I just think I, I just want, you know, the, the, the subject matter to be heard you know um, it's it's really painful to you know to, to view it's really brutal at times and you know it's had an impact on the two of us
1: we talk and write about duty of care quite a lot here here at broadcast uh in in all in all different tv genres and and how about for you guys like do you how is it almost keeping your mental health in check when you're spending such a long period of time speaking to these people talking about these topics Yeah,
3: no, I mean, look, as you say, duty of care is absolutely vital and, you know, has been a huge, huge consideration on a project like this. Um, We've had uh, support throughout the project from the NSPCC, um, both for the whole of the production staff and also for all of the contributors. Um, You know, we've had additional psychological support recently has been made available by the BBC we we've taken it very very seriously we've had um you know both in both within the production and also for the contributors so yeah I'd I'd say we've we've been very mindful of having psychological support in place for ourselves throughout the production and also for the contributors Mm. um but as you say and as Dan sort of alluded to yeah it's 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 very challenging I think you know the the last few years with what's been happening in the world, um, you know, has also meant that this has been a challenging period in everyone's lives. So, you know, navigating that alongside, you know, the difficulties of engaging in a project like this, you know, for survivors has been has been challenging. But um, mm. I don't think, you know, Dan, I mean. I think we've had kind of amazing support structure in place and you know I'm so grateful to the NSPCC for how they've helped
2: us through throughout the production. Yeah and I'd, I'd echo that I think uh, when when we got to the end of the process filmically with Hillsborough I hadn't quite I hadn't quite appreciated the toll that that took on, on all of us and I was quite mindful of that when we started this project but again I, I I think I seriously underestimated how much was going to be involved um, for us as a production. Um, I, I think it's one of the best decisions we made was engaging with the NSPCC. Um, they, they have been brilliant for all of us, um, certainly myself and and Hugh included. They, they've been there for us. And and we've had, you know, again, it's it's stressful enough making any production or any series, um, but then you, you sort of throw in, you know, the, the contributors, lives and and their stories and and their ups and downs so yeah we've been mindful of duty of care but but one of the things that you tend to do um is take care of everyone else and not take care of yourself Mm. um Mm. so it's been quite good we've got myself and you've got an excellent relationship and we're kind of able to look out for each other but there are times when we're both quite low and someone else will pick us up and it's quite it has been a it has been a challenge to try and have that duty of care across absolutely everybody but again to underline that both both the NSPCC and, and more recently the BBC have have understood very quickly that you know we, we all need a little bit of help as we approach the the broadcast um, and certain you know um, I guess the sort of sensitivity becomes higher as you approach broadcast.
1: We're, we're we're a we're predominantly a TV podcast and we love to ask our our guests what they've been watching. But I thought specifically I might in in reference to this show ask you guys maybe about a recent documentary that either inspired Football's darker Secret or that you learned some techniques from?
3: I guess we've watched, you know, we've been conscious of other films in this space. You know, uh, Athlete A is a big Netflix film about, you know, the gymnastics coach abuse scandal there. But I guess, I don't know, I, in terms of sort of influences, um,
2: I'm not sure, Dan, I might get to you on that. I, I'm re- yeah. I mean, I, I purposely haven't gone to all the abuse documentaries at all for reference, and it's funny because this past year, for all the you know supposedly the time that we've had at home, and normally I'm never at home full stop. I barely watched any <laughs> TV, um, and I guess uh, you know I, I've actually found, funnily enough, the last the last few months is Shits Creek has saved me. <laughs> Um, just in terms of my mental well-being, just to sit down at the end of the night, in theory, 20 minutes, but ends up being an hour or an hour and 20, depending how many I actually sit down and view. But that has been uh, a genuine saviour.
1: Thank you so much, look, It's been an absolute pleasure, Hugh and Daniel, Thank listening you. to a little bit more about the making of this documentary. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, the show is also an
0: example of the BBC providing... Uh, public service broadcasting and its journalistic best. Max, you've you've seen it and uh, it's what you've been watching this week.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, my my what we've been watching this week is uh, is going to be football's darkest secret, which which I was um, given the pleasure of watching on preview prior to my interview with Hugh and Daniel. Uh, and I I can highly recommend it. I've I've watched the first two episodes. It's very long. That's what that's what I'll say. I think considering it's obviously about one quite specific subject and a story that has been told quite a bit in national newspapers over the last few years depending on how much one might have followed it i would have thought it might it might have been like a really heavy hitting single but it's actually three parts of which the second one is an hour and 20 minutes so i've watched the first two of which two hours and 20 minutes of my time has been given to it and for something that is really quite depressing and really quite grave you would think that that might be a little bit of overkill but i can absolutely confirm that it is not it's really a really beautifully shot documentary it has a re- one of the most enjoyable kind of time-lapse sequences that that I think I've seen um, in a doc. So it moves really seamlessly between back then, which is the, the 70s and 80s, and then 2016 onwards, which is when uh, these allegations, which had actually previously come out a couple of times, but were returned to the fore with a, an interview an ex-footballer Andy Woodward did with the Guardians' Daniel Taylor. Um, it's really, really sad. The testimony of the men is quite brutal. They've, they've got, there are kind of 10 or so survivors uh, of this harrowing experience who contribute to the documentary um, and you learn about their stories and you hear from their parents. And it's something that you sort of have to adjust to early on and then realize that you're gonna <laughs> listen to for quite a while, but it doesn't get boring. The harrowing nature of it isn't too much of a problem I found that I could stay with it and I was also learning a lot at the same time about what actually took place and it will just really rile you up as well like you cannot believe it's it's again one of those kind of cultural things that's entrenched in a different time you simply cannot believe this stuff was allowed to take place you simply cannot believe these people were allowed to go unchecked for so many years and it it really gets you thinking so it's going to be like you said it's going to be stripped next week it's going to be available as an iPlayer box set from episode one, which is interesting in itself. Uh, and I could recommend to football fans and non-football fans alike. Jesse, how about yourself? What, what have you been watching this week?
0: So I've, I've, my time has been split between two very distinct types of television watching. Um, so in the AM, my morning goes, uh, woken up by my cats at, uh, at 6 AM, fight them off until about half past six and then go and feed them. Uh, and then I'll jump on to the exercise bike in my living room and I'll watch uh, a couple of episodes of uh, NBC Superstore, which is um, available over here on Netflix. Superstore is one of these American sitcoms uh, ensemble casts, which I think I probably would have passed me by had it not been on Netflix. I sort of just flicked it on, not expecting very much, wasn't particularly uh, thrilled by it but have now got to the point where I'm sort of binging through it quite quickly and have grown to really enjoy the characters as you might expect. Uh, it's set in a superstore, an American superstore um, called Cloud Nine. There are some really enjoyable characters. Uh, America Ferrara, who was in Ugly Betty, plays one of the leads. Um, and there are several sort of, I'd say if you, if you were American, you'd probably know them actors, but not hardly any other kind of well-known international actors. Um, but uh, it's, it's a, yeah, fun series. Uh, lots of jokes, kind of very in that very U.S. network style of comedy. It's quite broad, but some of it can be a bit like you know, wow, that one surprised. That one uh, made it made it past the um, uh, past the boards. Um, so that's that's what I'll do in the morning, and then in the evening, uh, my wife and I are watching another American series, Snowpiercer, which is the um, the drama that uh, TBS. Um, uh, which is one of the warner media channels uh producers. uh it's again over here it's it's distributed through netflix um and it's based on the south korean film of the same name uh, and it's it's kind of a strange like really super high concept um so it's, it's quite a cool idea and um, very well put together i'll say u.s cable series um you can you, you really really feel like the the budget is um, is done well because it's very, it's all obviously very small and claustrophobic. Um, and um, whilst lots of scenes are shot in the same sorts of places and maybe the same empty cars, you certainly don't see one thousand and one of them. Um, it's just really well put together and um, it doesn't feel particularly schlocky sh- at all. Thank you for joining me today, Max. Uh, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week.
1: See you later. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Broadcast News Wrap and be sure to check in to broadcastnow.co.uk for more news and views on the British telly landscape. You can subscribe to the podcast and listen back to all older episodes by going to your preferred podcast platform and downloading. This episode was presented by me, Broadcast Insight Editor Jesse Whittock, and I was joined by Max Goldbart, who doubled as this week's editor.